Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us this morning, and uh, whether you're here in person or checking us out online, we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us as part of our Sunday service here at Grace Today. And um, if you are new, my name's Don, I'm one of the pastors here, and you've come at a great time because we're really starting a new series that we're beginning this week, uh, which will be a three-week series, where we're really going to dig into, uh, and deeply in some ways, uh, God's love for us, and uh, really try to flesh that out, and uh, to a, to just bring us to a deeper understanding of that. So, uh, I'm going to kick this off this week with a, a message entitled "Children of God," and we're going to just be looking at one verse today, First John three one. Uh, so you can track with us as we'll put the slides and things we're going to be using up on the screen. Um, So thank you for being here with us. Well, it didn't look like much. She didn't even remember where she had come by it. It was just some old painting. Small at only 8 by 10 inches and wooden, old and religious in nature, it would probably look good in the kitchen or maybe in the hallway. And that's where it hung for years over the hot plate in the kitchen of a French woman who is now in her 90s. She thought it was of little importance and less value, and she may have even considered tossing it in September of 2019 as she prepared to move out of her house in Compagne, a town north of Paris. But had she done that, the art world would have lost a masterpiece because a dusty, worthless icon, it was not. (laughs) Uh, Its owner, uh, the French woman who hasn't been publicly identified, asked an auctioneer to look through her house before she moved out to her new place, and the auctioneer kind of saw the picture and suggested that she take it to some art experts just to have it appraised. And so she did. And here's a picture of that particular painting. And the painting is entitled Christ Mocked. And it has been attributed to the 13th century Italian artist Seni di Peppo, known as Cimabue, who is a Renaissance painter whose work is just exceedingly rare. And this particular painting was put up for sale at an auction on October 27, 2019, and sold for $26.8 million. You know, we, we hear stories like that from time to time where where someone has something that they've acquired or that's been given to them, but they just have no idea what it's really worth. I mean, we kind of like to watch some of us antiques roadshow because people bring their stuff in and they just don't have any idea what it's worth. And sometimes they're shocked at the value. But they, you know, they have things, they know it's theirs, but they have no idea how valuable or precious it really is. And you know, I think sometimes as Christians, that's the way we can be when it comes to God's love for us. 
We know we have it, and we appreciate it at some level, but we can have little or no idea just what kind of love that is. How great and valuable and precious it really is. I mean, what it really means that we are children of God. And I think that's what the Apostle John in our text for today in 1 John 3, 1, I think that's what he wants us to get. See, he doesn't want us to leave God's love for us hanging on a wall somewhere, so to speak, where we pass by it regularly in our lives, but just with little awareness or appreciation of just how valuable and precious it really is. And so as we look at this verse in 1 John 3, 1, here's what he says. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now, as you track through this letter that John has written, as we come up to this particular uh, verse in the beginning of chapter 3, you can, you can kind of sense John's excitement and enthusiasm as he gets to this point. The language has almost a sense of wonder to it and see what kind of love God has given to us. Uh, and this phrase, what kind of love, the, the, the word kind here, is it has the idea of this great love, this lavish love. It's a love that's extravagant, it's surprising, it's even shocking. And so this morning, I want to try to unpack a little bit God's love for us and what it really means to be a child of God. And so to do that, uh, I need to take us into sort of the deep end of the theological pool for a bit. So put your kind of thinking caps on because we're going to be wading into some deep waters this morning as we try to dig into this. Uh, but I want to spend a little time talking about the Trinity and particularly how our salvation and God's love for us relates to the Trinity. Now, if you're like me, you probably don't think about the Trinity all that much. And you probably think about it even less in regard to its relevance to God's love for you or your salvation or what it means in terms of being a child of God. But I would suggest to you that you can't fully grasp the wonder and amazement of God's love for you and what he has done in saving you without viewing it in light of the Trinity. So before we dig in a bit, let's take a moment and pray. Well, Lord, where we are going this morning, there are not words, no language can suffice to communicate, to begin to grasp and portray the wonders of who you are in your Trinitarian fullness. So, Lord, I would pray that in my limited capacity, you would grant a divine and supernatural light to shine this morning, that somehow greater than the words I speak, you might shine light into the hearts of those who are here and listening. And, Lord, you might uh, grant grace and do a work that we might see just how amazing and wonderful your love for us really is. So, Lord, help me. Lord, help me 
to speak in a way that serves your purposes and these people this morning as we talk about these things, that you might be glorified and that your church might be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin. So just two points we want to look at today. First, we want to spend some time looking at the Trinity. So let's talk a little bit about the Trinity. So Wayne Grudem, in his uh, book, Bible Doctrine, has a very simple definition of the Trinity, and he kind of captures it in three simple statements. He says, one, God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. Three simple statements. And each one of those statements is very simple and easy to understand in and of itself. The problem comes when you try to put them together and realize that they all describe God in the same way at the same time. That's when things begin to tilt in our understanding. And because really there is no way that in our humanity we can comprehend the Trinity. Uh, it is one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith. Um, and so while we will never be able to fully grasp and understand the intricacies of the Trinity, if it's true that creation is a reflection of God's glory and who he is to some degree, then we might be able to see some things in creation that we can use to help us understand some things about the Trinity. And so over the centuries, theologians have come up with different models, if you will, that help explain certain things that seem to be true about the Trinity. And we need to be careful whenever we're using models about the Trinity because there is no model that can fully grasp or contain the depth and the wonder of the Trinity. And so all models fall short uh, at some point. But models can be helpful in helping us see certain things that the Bible seems to say are true. And so this morning, I want to look at one particular model uh, that I think will be helpful in our seeking to understand a little bit more deeply about God's love for us. And this model is often referred to as the psychological model. Uh, and the reason is because it kind of is drawn from how we've been designed as human beings and how that might reflect something about God's Trinitarian nature. And so this particular model was kind of put forth about 1,700 years ago by Augustine, and it was later uh, really developed more fully and used more fully in the theology of Jonathan Edwards. And if you want a kind of a modern-day person who would sort of rely on uh, the theology of this and his work, uh, John Piper would be uh, an example. And so I've got a few little slides here that we'll use to kind of just portray this because this is... This is deep stuff we're getting into here. So the Trinity. Uh, so let's begin with the Father. And the Father is God existing in his primal, eternal, absolute essence. He's eternal, infinitely holy, beautiful, omnipotent, all-wise. He is the very essence of God in all that he is. But from all eternity, God has had a perfect, exact, and complete idea of himself. An image, if you will, or reflection.
reflection of himself. And through this idea or image of himself, he knows, understands, and expresses himself perfectly. Now, to give you a little bit of sense of a distant analogy, you might think of it this way. When, When you look in the mirror, you see a reflection of yourself. When you think about something that happened yesterday that you think about in your mind, you you picture it in an image to some degree. Now, the problem is, in our experience, those images are extremely limited and partial. So when you look in the mirror and you see a reflection of yourself, all you're seeing is is some uh, partial reflection of your physical appearance. But when God beholds himself or the idea of himself that idea is so full and complete and perfect that it literally manifests as another person in the Godhead. And that person is the Son. And so as God beholds his own beauty and perfections there in the Son, there arises a love and joy and delight that flows between the Father and Son, a love that is so infinitely pure and powerful and deep that it literally manifests itself as a third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Uh, Joe Rigney, in uh, his very good good book called The Things of Earth, devotes a chapter to this, and I'm going to quote him a lot today several times, but he says this about this. He just describes it this way. He says, from all eternity, God has beheld his beloved son with perfect clarity. And there has arisen between the father and son a love so pure and deep, so matchless and limitless, so boundless and infinite, that love stands forth as a full third person in the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of the the psychological model of the Trinity. Now, if you were like me when I first heard this, the first question that comes to your mind is, well, where is that in the Bible? (laughs) And that's a fair question, because at first this sounds kind of strange when we hear it. But if we really dig into Scripture a bit, we actually find there's quite a bit of support for this uh, uh, that we can dig out. So, for instance, in regard to the Father and Son, and the Son being a reflection, an image of the Father, there there are many places in Scripture that describe the Son exactly that way. Colossians 1.15, speaking of the Son, or Jesus, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or Hebrews 1.3, where it says, speaking of the Son, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And then there are a number of places where Jesus and the Son is described as being the wisdom of God. Places like in the first chapters of Proverbs where God's wisdom is described as being the Son. And we can find places like in the beginning of John where Jesus or the Son is described as being the Logos or the Word of God, right? And what's that mean? Well, that literally means that he is the exact expression 
of who he is, of who God is. And then there are places like John 14, 9, where Jesus himself says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So there's a fair amount of support for this idea of the Son being an image, a reflection of the Father. Well, what about the Holy Spirit as the love that flows between the Father and Son in the Bible? Uh, Where do we find that in Scripture? And again, if we dig in, I think we can find some pretty interesting things that would seem to support this. Uh, One is, when you read through Scripture, you can find a number of places where the Bible talks about the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, but there is no place in Scripture where you ever see the Father loving the Spirit, the, the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father, or the Spirit loving the Son. It's just, it's just not in there. Why is that? Well, perhaps it's because the Spirit is the love that the Father and Son have for each other. Or we could take that one step further. We also find places where it talks about that the Son loves us, right? And the Father loves us. But you never see any place where it talks about the Spirit loving us. Why? Well, maybe because the Spirit is the love of God that flows to us. And if actually, if you read through the New Testament and Paul's letters, um, you know, he almost always starts his letters with a greeting, and part of that greeting usually includes a blessing that goes something like, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? If you look through Paul's letters, almost all of them have that. What's interesting is the Holy Spirit is never included in that blessing as one of the parts of the Godhead that those blessings come from. It's always the Father and the Son, never the Spirit. Well, again, why would that be? Well, I think it's because the Spirit is the grace and peace that comes from the Father and Son to bless God's people. Um, or, or we could, you know, if we really look at, there'd be a number of places we could look in Scripture where it would seem like there is almost this synonymous use of love and the Holy Spirit, like they almost mean the same thing in the Bible. Uh, one place would be in Ephesians 3, 16 through, 8 through 19. And in this passage, Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. And he prays this prayer, this is part of his prayer, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, it was this particular passage that kind of began my own personal journey and discovery in some of these things, because uh, this would be one of my favorite prayers in the Bible when I pray a lot for myself. Um, 
But I remember one day I was just looking at this particular passage and looking at the connection made here between knowing God's love, knowing it deeply, experientially, and the result of that being filled with the fullness of God. So knowing somehow being filled with God's love results in being filled with the fullness of God. And what struck me was how similar the language was here to uh, a few chapters later in Ephesians 5.18, where Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And so I re- it hit me that being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the fullness of God, right? And here it says, being filled with God's love is being filled with the Spirit of God. And so I realized that in some sense, this, there's, they're talking about the same thing, that the Spirit is this love of God that fills us, that we might be filled with his fullness. I'll give you one more. Um, Galatians 5.22, familiar passage that many of us know. The fruit of the Spirit is Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Most of us are familiar with that verse. And uh, sometimes we misquote it a bit because uh, we can often quote it as the fruits of the Spirit. But it's really not fruits. It's singular. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Because the way lists like this work in the Bible is when you have a list like this, the first word, is kind of the umbrella word that, that is the, the main point, and all the rest of the words in the list really flesh out what that word means. And so what he's really saying here is the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is what the Spirit produces. And all these other words just describe what loves look like and how that's being fleshed out. And so, uh, so that's some of, uh, I think, the biblical evidence to support this. So uh, sometimes there's a question that arises in your mind. I mean, I remember thinking this myself. So if, if the Spirit is God's love that flows between the Father and Son and flows out to us, um, does that mean that the Spirit is not a full, distinct person in the Godhead? Is he just some force, it seems like, if he's just love? And uh, the answer is no, but to understand why, there's one more thing uh, that we want to kind of understand about the Trinity. And it's something called the mutual indwelling of the Godhead. And there's a a big theological word called perichoresis that describes this. But here's the idea that even though the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons in the Trinity, they each indwell one another. And so the Father indwells the Spirit. The Father indwells the Son. The Son indwells the Spirit. The Spirit indwells the Son. And, And so on. Again, I'll quote from Joe Rigney, who describes this. He says, this reality is what enables us to distinguish the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from one another without separating them from one another. The Father is not the Son, but he is in the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, but he is in the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, but he is in the Father. 
And this mutual indwelling is thorough and complete. All that the Father is, he is in the Son. And and the Spirit, all that the Son is, he is in the Father and the Spirit. All that the Spirit is, he is in the Father and the Son. There are no leftovers, no remainder, no excess divinity. And so what makes the Spirit have the fullness of personhood is because the Father and Son dwell in the Spirit, um, which makes each part person of the Trinity a full, complete person. Now, right now you're probably saying, what in the world did I come here for today? <laughs> Uh, but hang with me for a minute because this, there's purpose in this. Um, so one more step I want to take is understanding this Trinitarian fullness. In other words, that, that God is not only the Father, Son, and Spirit, but there is a, a, a relational interplay between the Father and Son through the Spirit that is filled with infinite joy and wonder and delight as the Father delights in the Son, the Son and the Father, and this powerful, infinite love flowing back and forth between them. And this is important for us to be able to accurately understand what the glory of God is. Because, you know, the, the glory of God is a, is a phrase that's thrown around quite a bit. But many times, if you kind of ask somebody, can you really define what the glory of God is? You just have a hard time coming up with a really clear definition. And so what the glory of God is, is it's not just the perfections of who God is. But it's also the knowing, loving, and delighting in those perfections that takes place in the Godhead. Uh, Again, I'll quote from Joe Rigney. He says, put simply, because God is always triune, we must always conceive of his glory in Trinitarian terms. God's glory is his Trinitarian fullness or the abundance of perfections and knowledge and love and joy and life that he has within the Godhead. Or to put it another way, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, knowing, loving, and rejoicing in each other from all eternity simply is the glory of God. And so we have this picture of this divine trinity of Father, Son, delighting, loving, knowing, and and the power of love and joy that flows between the two. That's the glory of God. So, so much for the trinity. Hope you're able to track a little bit through that. But I want to go to the next step, and our second point for today is to look at just how, what does this have to do with creation and salvation? Because if we kind of get a sense of this Trinitarian fullness of God, then the purpose of creation begins to kind of become a little clearer. Because creation is really just the overflow, if you will, of the infinite love, joy, and delight that the members of the Godhead have in one another. Uh, Their infinite love and joy and delight overflows into their making a universe where this love, joy, and delight can be seen and experienced. And so it's like 
It's as if the father and son were having a discussion one day and, and the, the father says to the son, this, this is just too good. What, what we have here in, in our Trinitarian relationship, it's just too good to keep to ourselves. Let's make a universe. Let's make a world. Let's make creatures that we can share this with. And so God does. And he makes a universe and he makes and he makes human beings for the purpose of their being able to share in the wonders of his Trinitarian fullness. But if you know the story of the Bible, you know what happens, right? Sin comes into the world, and that purpose is broken because Through sin and the fall, man's relationship is broken with God, and he is separated from God, and so his capacity to experience this Trinitarian joy and love and delight that is beyond our ability to describe has been lost. But from eternity past, God has always had a plan and a purpose that he would have a people for himself who he would bring into to share in this incredible Trinitarian fullness that he has in his Trinitarian life. And so he sends his son into this world to accomplish that, to rescue a people and restore them to the capacity to share and participate in his Trinitarian life. And uh, one more time from Joe Rigney. He says, God glorifies himself by inviting us to participate in his Trinitarian fullness. Put another way, God glorifies himself by extending his glory so that his divine life comes to exist in creaturely form. So there are two things that he says in that quote, that that God takes his divine life and extends it to place it in us. And by doing so, we get to share and participate in his Trinitarian love and joy and delight. And so one last quote from him He says, the glory and fullness of God includes the display of all his perfections, but it also includes our knowledge of his perfections and our love for his perfections and all the thoughts and affections and actions that flow out of that knowledge and love. In a word, when God glorifies himself in saving us, he invites us to participate in his triune Now, I I wish that there was some way I could let the magnitude of that sink in. Because that is beyond belief. God would choose to make creatures so far below who he is in his divine essence and being and bring them in to share in the fullness of his Trinitarian life with the Father and Son and the joy and delight that they experience in one another. So really, salvation 
then is nothing less than our inclusion and participation in the infinite knowing, loving, and delighting in one another that exists between the members of the Godhead so that we share in their knowledge, love, and joy. And this, this is the very definition of life. The very definition of what eternal life is in John 17, 3. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what it means to have a relationship with God. He's included us in the relationship between the members of the Godhead. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 1. Three through four. It's, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, listen to what He says, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Unfathomable, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desires. You've become a partaker of God's divine nature. Now, you won't be God because you won't participate in that Trinitarian fullness the same way the Father and Son will, but you will get to share and taste and experience and enjoy that reality. See, this is why it was better when Jesus said to his disciples, it's better that I go. You might say, well, Jesus, how could it be better that you go? He said, the reason it's better if he goes, because if he goes, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit that brings us into this Trinitarian reality where we get to share in God's incredible Trinitarian life between Father, Son, and the joy and the love and the delight that flows between them. And this, this is really what it means to be a child of God, that you've been brought into this reality of the infinite joy and love and delight that exists in the Godhead between the members of the Trinity. You know, one of the places that I think Jesus uh, kind of speaks to this is in his high priestly prayer in John 17. And a lot of times I think when people read this uh, and they, they listen to what he says about unity, um, we kind of take that to, to mean that we're to be united with one another as Christians. And, th- and there is an element of that here, but what he's saying in this prayer goes so far beyond that that it is unimaginable to consider. Let's look at what he says and see if you see these threads in his prayer. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly 
one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you see this this inclusion that we've been brought into where we get to share in the same kind of relational dynamic that the Father and Son have in the Trinity? Now, I understand that, that these things might feel kind of academic and abstract. But if you, if you get this, I think nothing could be really further from the truth. You see, here's the thing. The Trinity's knowing, loving, and delighting in one another is in essence God knowing and loving and delighting in himself as the supremely worthy and valuable object of his love and delight. John Piper kind of describes it this way. He says, the original, the primal, the deepest, the foundational joy of God is the joy he has in his own perfections as he sees them reflected in the glory of his son. See, if this is true, this is what our salvation has brought us into. See, salvation is is not just going to heaven. Salvation is being included in the relationship in the Godhead. We are included in the mutual indwelling of the members of the Trinity through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We participate in the infinite love and joy and delight that the Father and Son have with each other. The essence of our salvation is that we, through the work of Christ, are brought to participate in this Trinitarian life of knowing, loving, and delighting in God as the supremely worthy and precious reality that he is. And this is This is the source of infinite love and joy and happiness. There could be no greater gift that God could ever give. This is God's joy and delight in himself that we get to be included in. There are just no words that can even describe what that joy and delight that God has in himself is. The psalmist describes it this way in Psalm 1611. He says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or in Psalm 36, 7 through 9, the psalmist says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And look at what he says next. He says, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. 
In your light do we see light. God gives us to drink from the fountain of his, the river of his delights. It's a river. It's vast. It's flowing. It's infinite. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. And this river is God's joy and love and delight in himself. And we get drawn into that to share and participate in that reality. I mean, what an incredible wonder that is. I mean, this is what Jesus purchased for us. This is what it means to be a child of God. This is what the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit has brought us into. And this great love is to fill our lives and produce a love in our hearts for God as we get to take part in the joy and love that he has in himself. And this love is to shape our lives, and overflow in how we relate to others. And see, here's the thing. Now, in this life, we just get a little taste. You know, the Holy Spirit being given to us in this life is described as a, a deposit, a down payment, if you will, of what's to come. And see, right now, we just get just, just a little taste of this through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. We're kind of like, if you ever saw the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, we're like, like Charlie, the, the little boy in that movie when he gets the, the Wonka bar in the early part of the movie. You know, we've, we've been given a, a, a Wonka bar that or he's given a Wonka bar that, that has a, a taste of the best chocolate there could ever be. But in that bar, there's a golden ticket. And that golden ticket is his promise that one day he will be able to go into the factory and experience the immeasurable joys of all the chocolate and wonders of that chocolate factory. But for us, it's not chocolate. It's God's amazing, incredible love. And the day is going to come when we're going to go into the factory of that love. And we're going to experience it in all of its fullness. And we will spend eternity when Jesus comes back, ever growing in our knowing and loving and understanding and the depth of our experience of that love. That is what eternal life is all about. And so we come back to the words of 1 John 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I mean, no wonder John is so excited and enthusiastic as he says, these words in this letter. If I could have the band come and join me. You know, if you're here and you've, or you're listening and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is what God is inviting you into. He's inviting you into the most incredible love and joy and delight that could ever be known. 
But the thing of it is, see, you can't get in apart from Jesus. Because our fallenness, our sin as human beings, we're all sinners, we've all fallen short, keeps us from having access to this love and joy and delight in God. And God sent Jesus to make a way for that to be fixed and for him to restore that capacity to us. And so Jesus is the only way that we can get access to that. And so Jesus came into this world to die on a cross, to give himself to die, to pay for those sins that we've all committed so that he would take God's judgment for them. We could be forgiven, brought back into a relationship with God, and we could get access to the incredible love and joy that God has in himself. That's why he came. And so if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, if you've never turned to him and put your hope in him as your Lord and Savior, God is inviting you today to to do that, that you might have the opportunity to know this incredible love that God has for his children. A love that you'll get a taste of now, but one day you will experience in all of its fullness. So I I would invite you to turn to Jesus. Put your hope in him. Put your trust in him. Make him your Lord and Savior. That this might be true for you. And if you have placed your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you know, God has loved you in a way that is beyond comprehension. He's chosen at great cost to make a way for you to share in his glory, to participate in the infinite love and joy that he experiences in his Trinitarian fullness. God has included you in the very love, joy, and delight that he shares with his son. And God's Holy Spirit, the spirit of this love, dwells in you. And that love lives within you. And you've you've become a partaker of his divine nature. And that love is the greatest joy and happiness you could ever know. It's what you were made for. It's what you were created to be satisfied with in the very depths of your soul. It's a love more wondrous than anything you could ever know. And your destiny is an eternity of ever-increasing joy and delight in knowing and experiencing this infinite love. And so my heart and prayer for each of you is that God might grant you by his grace a deeper divine revelation and experience of this great love now in this life, today as you await that destiny to come in all of its fullness. That the words that John says a little later in this letter, in 1 John 4, 16, might be true in your life, where he says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So before we 
stand and sing about this great love. Here's the way I'd like to close our time. Is I want to pray for each and every one of you that's here, that's listening online, wherever you might be. I want to pray for you as we close. And I want to pray the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, uh, that God might fill you with this love and that you might know it more deeply. And if this would be your desire, I would invite you to pray along with me and you can just personalize it and make the use me's um, and just pray with me. So let me pray for you. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And may God grant that in each one of your lives.